When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome again to the Explaining History podcast, and uh, I'm going to talk mainly today about the establishment of Britain's wartime propaganda system in 1939, and the first uh, beginnings of uh, development of the public mind in Great Britain during that period of time. Now, this is really, really crucial as far as the British government is concerned, because there isn't the uh, grand outpouring of jingoistic excitement that greets the beginning of war in 1914. Instead, there are a number of very pessimistic outlooks. The levels of unemployment, for example, were still chronically high. By January 1940, there were still a million people without work. So the the country is not in an economically or a socially unified position at the start of the war. There are innumerable um, members of the aristocracy, the Conservative Party and other elites in society that have huge misgivings about going to war with Hitler, not least because many of them admire him. They look upon his uh, anti-communist uh, and anti-trade union actions and see basically strong men across Europe like Hitler as being the ultimate bulwark between them and revolutionary socialism. Many have long memories of the immediate unrest from about 1916 onwards culminating in the early 1920s with the fear of a, a Europe-wide Bolshevik takeover. And of course, much of the population through Pathé newsreels at the cinema would have seen the devastation that aerial bombing had brought to Abyssinia, to Spain, to Nanjing in China between 1935 and 1937. Um, and the statistical extrapolations and predictions that the government had made about the level of devastation that aerial bombing would bring to cities across Great Britain um, were wildly exaggerated, but without any actual prior experience, it was understandable that these um, uh, this, this view that tens of millions might die um, was, was propagated. 
it was believed by some of the more pessimistic um, uh, statisticians in the government that within weeks anarchy would break out across the country. There was therefore a strong uh, peace movement that had been uh, during the 1930s, um, before the Munich crisis, and it had been centred around uh, Father Dick Shepherd, um, canon of St Paul's Cathedral. It launched the Peace Pledge Union, where thousands and thousands of people from across Great Britain pledged to oppose war of any nature. Um, the reason for this, obviously, is that the First World War still cast a long shadow over Great Britain, and the fear of subsequent war was heightened in the second part of the 1930s. Seventy constituency Labour parties demanded peace, and there were 22 Labour MPs who signed a manifesto demanding an early armistice. Now, in examining the actions of the British government, this period, 1939 to 1940, is often paradoxical and confusing, in that there were indications uh, that Britain was getting ready to wage total war. There had been a peacetime conscription, the first in British history, which had been introduced in April 1939, and this was also extended uh, later on to include women, um, the, which was the first time that uh, that happened, not just in Britain, but in uh, any uh, democratic nation. The Emergency Powers Defence Act was authorised, and this meant that, much as the Defence of the Realm Act during the First World War uh, did, that the government had um, writ to do pretty much whatever it wanted. And this certainly meant with communications um, that the government had supreme control. And this did not mean that it needed to defer to Parliament. So any uh, news report, any commercial communications or private messages that left Britain, that then this was by uh, wireless or mail, by cable or telephone, uh, could be censored. And for the first time ever, the British government has supreme control over information that is transmitted from Britain and within Britain. Now, in all conditions, these are the sorts of powers that dictators dream of. And the point of the matter is that they are kind of dictatorial powers, but that for the period of the emergency they existed but because of the existence of a sovereign parliament, could be prorogued thereafter. And the same was true in America, really, where Roosevelt assumes for himself, with the help of both houses of Congress, um, virtual dictatorial powers throughout the course of the war, purely because it is deemed necessary for the prosecution of the war. In 1936, as thoughts turned to the potential for a Second World War, and the British government examined what it had done effectively during the First World War, it was decided that a Ministry of Information would need to be established. This was planned in 1936, but brought into effect in 1939, uh, at the end of August 1939, in fact. And here we would see a conflict uh, between the more forward-looking Whitehall mandarins and the British chiefs of general staff, or chiefs of the imperial general staff. 
the um, newspaper editors in Fleet Street, who were unaware of the fact, that um, the general staffs looked at the development of new communications, particularly radio, with horror. And they thought that the only answer to this proliferation of information was to ban it, uh, was to make sure that the, there would be no news reported from the war whatsoever, and that the, there would be a system for controlling war correspondence, similar to that which existed in uh, the First World War. There would be uh, an official eyewitness, uh, a small number of correspondents who would be controlled by officers conducted to and from the front, and they would be given sort of toleration at headquarters, and they would be allowed to send back very carefully sensed dispatches on subjects which were kind of periphery, unlikely to affect uh, anything to do with morale, and certainly unlikely to give away any information about the operation of the war. While the Ministry of Information was assembling itself, it started off with um, 12 staff and then rocketed within a month to nearly a 1,000. The army established a public relations section, which was part of the intelligence section of the British Expeditionary Force. And the War Office thought that the uh, newspapers would be best um, served by asking them to nominate uh, their own journalists to accompany the British Expeditionary Force. Now, if you remember the podcast I did a while back about war reporters on the Western Front, the British Army eventually winds up almost kind of commissioning them as officers and having them wear uniform and look as close to being um, officers in the army as possible. And there is a, a logic behind this as far as the army is concerned, one that becomes more established in the Second World War. Um, it was to assimilate them into the army as much as possible so that they could see things from a military perspective and they could see things from the general's point of view. The British Expeditionary Force, when it left for France, would take with them um, the correspondence, but there would be um, a period of time when there would be some delay because the correspondents themselves need to be security vetted, needed to be granted their commissions um, and learn army regulations. They needed to look like officers, to have their uniforms tailored, and to be um, generally assimilated into the army machine um, as officers. And so, again, they would see things from the perspective of the uh, ruling elites within the army. And there are a few other situations where one can have the power to dictate to a journalist uh, the, the, the rules of engagement in this way. Nobody else who has uh, a reporter poking around their businesses and finding out what they're doing, be it kind of commercial or government, actually has the opportunity to force the journalist to be part of the system that they operate. The first journalist to be given official clearance by the British Army and the War Office was Alexander Clifford, who was formerly the chief of Reuters in Germany, the chief correspondent for Reuters in Germany. He was one of the officially sanctioned War Office eyewitnesses who came ahead of Fleet Street journalists. 
He went to France on the 19th of September with the British Expeditionary Force, and the only other British correspondents in France at that time were actually attached to the French army on the Maginot Line. One has to be slightly sympathetic for correspondents in France during this period with Fleet Street newspapers and uh, government agencies desperate for reports and interesting copy where nothing particularly of noteworthiness is happening. This is the period of the phony war where there is little to report or, or write home about. When Clifford did find a good story it would be eviscerated by the censors and this is partly to show that the relationship between journalists and censors that would be um, a difficult one throughout the entire war had at this point not really developed in any um, cooperative way. So journalists, when filing stories, realised that the the censors worked completely at cross-purposes with them, actually extracting any interesting information from the story whatsoever. Part of the history Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary of communications in the 20th century is the development of a more harmonious relationship between uh, state censors or the managers of information and journalists themselves. The um, War Office and later the British Ministry of Defence realised it was much, much better to collude with journalists and to seed good stories in the press or to draw journalists in and give them uh, quality information, trusted ones, of course, um, and to help mould the news agenda instead of to work at cross-purposes and to work as an obstacle to journalists. And the reason why this attitude gradually developed in the Second World War was because it became more and more clear that keeping populations in the war particularly in democratic societies, but not exclusively. The public mind had to be carefully managed in Soviet Russia and carefully managed in Nazi Germany. Keeping people's uh, commitment to the fight in periods of total war was extremely difficult and extremely important. And the, the fact of the matter that um, bombing could now reach civilian areas 
it meant that when the civilian population was dealing with things like the bombing of Hamburg or the bombing of Coventry, asking civilian populations to carry on fighting is quite a big ask at that. So using reporting to stir deep feelings of national sentiment and patriotism and nationalism and national identity and to suggest that the war that's being fought is quote-unquote the good war, um, that, that's a, a very powerful tool in maintaining a population at war. The French army had a quadruplicate system of uh, censorship where the journalist who uh, filed a story would have to send it to uh, four levels of um, censorship. Army headquarters, French general headquarters, there it would go to the British Ministry of Information set up in Paris, and then it would be sent through to another British censor and then telephoned to London. As a result, there were frustrated news audiences, not just in Britain, but also in America. Uh, American reporters who were embedded in France um, had the, uh, the same um, situation, the same problem. The um, American audiences for information about Europe, despite the fact that there were misgivings across America about involvement in Europe, there's a huge appetite for information uh, about what's happening. And the uh, American readership is generally dissatisfied about the levels of information uh, that it's getting. Um, writers to um, letters to uh, American newspapers complain about um, the just the bland and generalized nature of the news, um, and there's a high suspicion uh, amongst American readers that stories from France are really not being reported accurately. And in fact, there were genuine um, fantasies appearing in American newspapers that um, there had been invasions of Germany, that um, a Battle of Britain had happened in 1939, uh, that there was uh, fighting over the south coast, um, that a second Battle of Jutland had been fought, all these sorts of things. And so, paradoxically, American editors actually contacted their correspondents in Berlin, American journalists in Nazi Germany, to find out what was actually happening in Europe. Now, this actually tells you something quite interesting about the nature of censorship and propaganda. The British and the French were not attempting to censor the news um, in the same way that the, the Nazis were. The Nazi, uh, the Nazi uh, management of the press that had been uh, going on since 1933 uh, was, of a, was an entirely different um, operation for trying to mould public thought. But for a brief period of time in 1939... It appears that the Nazi uh, Ministry of Propaganda and Public Enlightenment is actually slightly more forthcoming with information than the British and the French are. Now, this isn't to suggest for a moment that the Nazi regime was more open. It certainly isn't. Um, it'd be nonsense to suggest such a thing. 
but it just happens to be one of these curious paradoxes um, briefly that, that, that emerges. No doubt because Goebbels thought that it was more expedient to keep American correspondents particularly on side by um, lavishing them with information and making them feel um, special and favoured in order to ensure that um, American public opinion had a good impression of Nazi Germany. The Germans themselves had obviously learned an awful lot from the British during the war, uh, during the First World War, on the uh, management of news and of information. The head of the Foreign Press Department, uh, Professor Karl Bonner, who worked directly for Goebbels, made sure that um, neutral correspondents, Americans particularly, had um, not lots of uh, petrol allowance so they could uh, get around Germany, uh, extra ration entitlements, and a nice exchange rate for their currency. And they, uh, some uh, correspondents actually received money directly from the Ministry of Propaganda and Public Enlightenment. Though this was handled very discreetly, um, as it was rightly seen as bribery. The uh, Julienhof, a large country house outside Berlin, um, was given was set up to be a, a nice country retreat for um, correspondents who were neutral or friendly. And it was implied, though it's not really valid to say to state this, that there was a freedom of uh, reporting uh, at the time. Of course, all dispatches would be scrutinised and examined by um, officials at the Ministry of Propaganda and Public Enlightenment. And any journalist who began to write stories which fell out of favour would start to find that it was more difficult to access information that there would be um, warnings, um, written warnings of dissatisfaction uh, sent to them, um, that their facilities could be disconnected. Potentially, uh, on the most serious of the of of um, scales, the journalist could be arrested for espionage and put on trial, and the only sentence for this was death. This didn't happen. But it was entirely possible for journalists to slip over this line, and it was a significant threat. Um, so the way that the uh, Germans managed the information system uh, in 1939 was to, uh, to reward journalists for good behaviour. And journalists who didn't write what was required of them though this was not enforced officially, found it very difficult to operate in any other way. So they understood tacitly and by implication how to play the game and how to make sure that both sides got what they wanted. The Nazis didn't encourage their own war correspondents. There were uh, journalists, photographers, cameramen, filmmakers, publishers and printers and artists and painters, um, the kind of whole spectrum of Germany's culture industry were drafted into the army. They were conscripted into the propaganda division of the army, uh, the propaganda company, or PK, 
And they did basic training as soldiers, and they were under orders to kill and fight when necessary. Uh, the About a third of them were killed or wounded, and this is basically the same figures as the German infantry itself. But their job really was to use their skills to, and this is a, a direct quote, influence the course of the war by psychological control of the mood at home, abroad, at the front and in enemy territory. And the men of the PK had really stolen a march on the British and the French by the beginning of September 1939. The PK had already established themselves um, a propaganda radio station in East Prussia called Radio Warsaw, uh, broadcasting across Poland and for, for four days before Warsaw fell itself. This caused a considerable confusion in Poland. But the effect in America was actually far more pronounced. Because the German uh, army had, allowed, had the PK men creating news as they went, they were uh, soldiers essentially equipped with cameras, with typewriters, um, filing copy. The American newspapers were inundated with news from Poland from a German perspective and American newspapers were full of photos taken by German soldiers of the PK and reports from Germany dominated the news pages of American newspapers and the Polish campaign was filmed and distributed as uh, film newsreels across America for cinema audiences to see. So the first propaganda victory of the war went to Germany, to the Third Reich's PK men, and not to Britain's Ministry of Information. Anyway, I'm going to continue talking about uh, information and propaganda and the war in the next few podcasts. Um, we're going to be talking about the Blitz later today, so thanks for listening. Check us out on iTunes. If you can give us a good write-up on the iTunes page, that'd be great. And also, if you can check out our Patreon page, that'd be nice as well. Thanks very much. All the best. Bye-bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.